Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And unfortunately we have to leave it there with the Celtic Folk Show because it's coming up to... Four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. And as usual, I'll be here until six this evening. Today, the role of Pine Gap in the US drone warfare with Stephen Daly. That's continuing an interview I did with him last week. He's from Independent Peaceful Australian Network. Two speakers who are at the rally in Canberra in support of Julian Assange. The monthly report from Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. The 50th anniversary of the Vietnam Moratorium March. Joan Coxage was one of those doing lots of the work then. And I will be speaking also with the Vice-Chancellor of Bethlehem University in Palestine, Brother Peter Bray. But he's back now and we can't do without him, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when you've caught me enjoying a game of two-up in a lane out the back of the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a con mission. An illegal game, I suspect, although the coins are being tossed by some of the most respectable people in our society. Great celebrity chefs, for instance, the great supermarket big supremos, great corporate figures enjoying the game, although when I say I'm enjoying the game, I'm not having a lot of luck. In fact, none. See, I know that in the end it's going to be near enough to 50-50, 50 heads, 50 tails, and thus far there's been several hundred tosses, well more exactly 340 tosses. I watched the first and being astute then decided to back the other knowing it must come up soon and it must be getting close because it's heads 340, tails nil, so, so I've copped 339 losses in a row. Which I now understand, because just a minute ago, this young worker serving coffee and refreshments to the great corporate entities, young worker whom someone suggested is being underpaid, but but I'm not sure of that, because these pillars of society wouldn't be part of cheating a worker uh, over and above the normal cheat, uh, cheat bit that's just part of uh, normal employment. Anyway, young worker just accidentally kicked the coin, and as it tipped over, it came up, Heads. Yet again, it's heads on one side and heads on the other. There's no tails. Two obverse and no converse. The respectable great corporates said how sorry they were. It was inadvertent that they won 340 in a row. Inadvertent. We had no idea there was this error. It comes down to the complicated rules meant to ensure a fair game. Incredible complexity. Worst payers, big supremo Rob the Worker Scott spoke for the responsible great corporates. Uh, incredible complexity? Yes, yes, really complicated clauses like the coin should have heads on one side and tails on the other. I mean, how's a simple business executive supposed to understand what that means? It reminds me a bit of this worker underpayment business. 
good business for business, but we'd think that just once, oh so occasionally, they'd misinterpret the complicated complexity and inadvertently overpay somebody, but, but seriously, they're not all bad. In an exclusive week that was survey, we uncovered as many as five caring employers who seemed to be paying their workers the correct rates. So they're only stealing the normal surplus value from those workers' labours. But more good news, problem solved, because the culprit has been fingered by no less an authority as our old mate, the Troubler was the industry profits groups, Innes will pox on the workers, and any wonder he wants a pox on the workers, because the problem of underpayments is down to, you got it, we got it, the evil unions. It's nothing to do with caring employers. The evil, evil unions. It's the caring employers who are being ripped off, according to in between backing heads 340 times at the two-up school, Innes told the week that was that poor celebrity chef George Calambaras paying workers had been crucified by the evil unions who, direct quote, no embellishment, as it is to believe, actually said... Unions have to bear much of the opprobrium for the collapse of Mr. Columbaras paying workers' business through their use of an over-emotional term like wage theft and relentlessly over-inflating and politicising the issue. My goodness, we knew unions were evil, but I don't think too many of us knew just how evil they were stroke are. How over-emotional to describe wage theft as wage theft. How over-emotional to politicise workers being underpaid by millions and millions of dollars. Why, if George could have gone on stealing from his workers, he could have gone on happily running his business empire, practising his own form of over-inflation. Over-inflating the ridiculously high prices he charges customers for the privilege of paying the ridiculously high prices he charges. The reassuring revelation of the real cause of wage theft, uh, sorry for the over-emotional language, real cause of wage inadvertencies, was undermined by the response of the Socialist Party Caring Business Class Relations spokesperson Tony Backworthen, uh, who attacked Innes, Innes's very reasonable explanation with, businesses just need to take compliance with employment law as seriously as they do with tax law. What an idiot. Or doesn't he care about workers not being paid? Surely he knows they already take not paying taxes as seriously as they take not paying workers. So much for him. Still big savings on specials down at the great supermarkets this week. Workers' wages, 50% off. 52 weeks only. Although really we'd think even Innes might, might think that sometimes it's better to just keep your mouth shut. The caring employers have come up with up this week with a counterclaim that the incredible complexity has led to workers being overpaid, which would carry a lot more credibility if they could come up with just one example. On the big end of town, you'll recall or won't recall our item last week. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony All-Being-Uzi, telling a big end of town audience on climate change, if there is such a thing, a business doesn't know what the government's policy is because, frankly, they simply don't have one. 
Oh, just like you, Anthony. Frankly, there is no comparison between the policy they don't have and the policy we don't have. Well, we did him a disservice last week. By week's end, Anthony announced the exciting extreme urgency Socialist Party policy, which is to think about developing a Socialist Party policy. Uh, oh, but with the guarantee he'll do something by 2050 or the end of the world, whichever comes first. Why, they'll start thinking about taking it really, really seriously by as soon as 2049. That was enough to cause apoplexy on the government side, declaring, attempting to address climate change, if there is, with, within 30 years, would, would destroy the economy as we know it, and would have a 100% unemployment rate. 100% of jobs would be destroyed. Scenes like Barnacle and that hardline socialist Joel Fitzgibbon Cole enjoying a profound reasoned debate in the corridors of puppet power when their policy on coal is almost identical. Imagine the depth of debate if they had real differences, although Fitzgibbon Cole, it seemed like Barnacle was the one having the fits. But in fact, let's be honest, hard as it is to admit, I know we've always been a big fan, but, but sadly I think we have to admit Barnacle's finally gone totally mad. Either that, or he was impersonating a red-faced, brainless octopus. Fitzgibbon Cole ended with, Barnacle, stop making a fool of yourself. That's like asking him not to get out of bed every day. The fossil pollution minister, Angus Tailings, predicted the end of the world if zero in 30 years was adopted. Rather ironic, but he, but he wouldn't see that. Said he was developing policy, not science. Don't get me wrong, we respect science, but the important thing now is policy, policy, policy. Oh, so based on science, Angus. Based on policy. Another item last week from the Swamp World, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, declaring the High Court ruling the Terra Nullius non-people are not aliens he can deport. Uh, this is alien to the, you know, like, 232-year history of, you know, like, like this country. Pete spoke for all of us, but this week, encouraging news, Pete says he will consider regulation to, or legislation to, quote, restrict the damage. Because if you're like me, listener, I've hardly been able to sleep since the decision. The damage, the damage, the damage, my head keeps spinning. Part of the damage, Pete said, the decision creates a new class in Trublawazi. Oh, true, true. We may have to acknowledge that genocide hasn't worked. Hence, presumably, Pete's brainwave to declare the Terra Nullius non-people aliens and throw them all out. Backed up by no less an authority than Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist, who declared the ruling meant apartheid, that one race, the Terra Nullius non-people, non-aliens, until Pete changes the law, of course, have privileges that the real people, the real rest of us, don't have victimised whites. And as usual, government losing cases and then heading back to Parliament to fix up the law they've just, uh, just lost proves their respect for and the important social role of the separation of powers. Speaking of, 
back in the US of Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor reckons the prosecution of one of his business cronies who leaked WikiLeaks information to assist Donald's election, um, election among about nine convictions is the greatest miscarriage of justice ever, ever. And he's almost certainly will pardon his cronies' reduced sentence, reflecting Donald's deep respect for the law. The episode originally leading Donald to declare, I love WikiLeaks, best ever, ever. I love WikiLeaks. Oh, good, Donald, so, so you'll stop pursuing Julian Assange for exposing US of war crimes? 175 years, worst league ever, ever. Sadly, the US of extradition case has proven Assange's guilt beyond reasonable. Documents found when Osama bin Laden was assassinated show he tried to get access to WikiLeaks information. Osama bin Laden. Case proved. It's like seeking information about poor Barnacle's insanity and therefore being responsible for poor Barnacle's insanity. Or, more accurately, seeking information about US of Hermos gracious majesty's home country and true blue Aussie war crimes and therefore being guilty of those war crimes. Or finally, if seeking false information is a crime, then Lord Rupert of Wapping would get about 400 years. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and it's great to have him back and also he'll be back in the years back tomorrow morning at nine o'clock with City Limits. Continuing the interview I began last week with Stephen Daly, a South Australian member of IPAN, Independent, Peaceful and Australian Network. Last week we focused on the US Air Force pilot whistleblower Brandon Bryant, his role in the deadly drone program with the US. Today, where Pine Gap fits into all of this? Well, Pine Gap picks the targets for a significant part of the globe. They, they're paired with other U.S. bases, and, you know, let's be clear, Pine Gap is a U.S. base for anything meaningful. They're paired with, there's one in, in London or near London, there's one in the U.S., but the importance of Pine Gap is that it covers many of the major areas where U.S. employed drones from Yemen to uh, Pakistan. And uh, including Afghanistan, Syria, etc. And that means that they're in regular employment for picking the targets. Now, they, they don't fire the missiles and the, the, the bombs from the drones. That's done from elsewhere, but they find the targeting information and they transfer it on. And that, particularly that involves listening in on phone calls because mobile phones are the main way. In a sense, what they're doing is not targeting people, they're targeting phones. And those phones are then become the, uh, the thing that is supposedly picking the supposed terrorist. And that's what they're doing. They're intercepting mobile phone calls thousands of miles away. And Pangab's been doing that for, for a number of years now, but it's been becoming particularly important. Though, as I said, they prefer to move beyond that eventually to completely autonomous systems, and then it becomes even more random. And in a sense, that doesn't matter because it's not the effect of the killing is not the, the most important thing. It's the, the fact that it can happen. Uh, it's to discourage people. How difficult or 
easy is it to get information about these these last things you've been talking about, the targeting phone calls? Is it in the well, public arena there, somewhere? There are various publications, ironically, particularly American military magazines, which give away information about this, but it has to be pieced together. And one of the, the key persons, of course, who does that is Richard Tanter, or which you, who you would know from the Nautilus Institute at the University of Melbourne. Um, he's taken over, in a sense, from Des Ball, who used to be the expert on U.S. bases in Australia. And um, he's pieced together a lot of information about this and other things that Pine Gap does. And I'm not saying this is the most important thing that it does because the, the nuclear uh, uh, question and the surveillance of uh, nuclear missile sites is still probably the most important thing that Pangab does, but this has become much more prominent in recent years, the activity. Well, from what you've said, how realistic is it really to hope that one day Pangab will be closed? Well, I don't think... We can talk about it in isolation. The only way it can be closed is if we move to a more independent foreign policy in general, one which keeps us out of U.S. wars. And that's that's the challenge. It's, it's We're a long way from that. We still, majority of Australians distrust President Trump for obvious reasons, but they still feel we need the U.S. alliance in some way. The biggest problem is convincing them that the U.S. alliance itself is the biggest threat to Australia, which IPAN, uh, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, can make a very good case for, and other groups as well. But that's that's hard to get across. I mean, um, we put out this press release for uh, which you picked up about the uh, the drone whistleblower. You're the only one who picked it up, and that's regular with us. We we find it very difficult to get through to the media. They simply aren't interested. Well, as we move into 2020, what other areas are there in front of IPAN at the moment in the, I suppose, in the, in the near future? Can I just refer to one other thing related to drones, which is that Australia is buying drones, probably between 6 and $7 billion worth of drones. Most of them are surveillance drones, but some of them are assassination drones. You would be asking an interesting question to uh, say to an Australian minister, why are we buying assassination drones? Who it is that we are assassinating? And the obvious answer is they're simply adjuncts to the Americans. Like a whole lot of other Australian military purchases, they are there to back up American efforts rather than anything else. And the surveillance drones, similarly, they're most likely to be deployed over the um, South China Sea as additions to American uh, efforts there. So we're getting into this technology as well. And I should also say that they do recruit children um, and young people in Australia for various drone programs as well, not so much the targeting at this stage, but building them, researching them. Uh, they've got activities in schools. Raytheon, the big American multinational arms manufacturer, and Lockheed Martin, the even bigger one, the biggest one in the world. They have active programs in various Australian schools and universities, and they, there's a whole series of reasons for that. There's propaganda, but there's also creaming off the best maths and science students uh, into their industries. So we're heavily involved in lots of ways in, in Australia. 
and we're highlighting that to say that IPAN does, and to say that that is part of the um, the price we pay for uh, an American alliance, which is supposed to protect us from we don't know what. Uh, I mean, there's no evidence that China, for instance, is threatening Australia, uh, except in the the sense of the American bases in Australia, the um, Pine Gap, uh, Northwest Cape, and um, the Darwin Marine Base, which is increasing its uh, its quota of, of uh, Marines as well. Just wondering about the video games and what we call them the war games. How many countries yep. are young people? listening and working those we don't know um, it, it's again it's a paradox the US tends to give out more of this information they're more arrogant if you like um, there's more diverse systems involved in the US there's more sources so we don't know but if any other countries are employing drones it's very likely that they would be doing, coming up against the same thing what I meant was the video the, how many? Yeah, yeah well, that, that's the same. The, the the one that we know of is an American one, but I'm sure that that would be part of the. It's just such an obvious path from liking video games in general, um, which are often quite violent, being engaged specifically in video games which mimic the uh, the targeting um, by the drone operators, and then you got to pull up people that you can recruit. So I'm sure other countries are doing it, but we just don't know about it. No, I'm just thinking too about it's sort of introduce a, a video games like these. There must be a purpose behind it, and you could see if you're a conspiracy theorist that that they were doing that to encourage people, young people, to go that step further. Well, we wouldn't be surprised if that was happening, if the military, the US military was, or the CIA or NSA were engaged in that. I mean, we've got reports from schools in Australia and at other places in which they're, um, they're encouraging people to be involved in drone research and uh, building drones um, by highlighting the whole range of areas they, they can be involved in, satellite imaging, marine monitoring, girls who are encouraged to be involved in science, and then they're gradually introduced more to the military end of things. So, I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's an active process of recruitment, not just to pilots, but to, well, uh, research and development of drone warfare and other drone warfare, uh, I'm sorry, autonomous warfare. Australia company has sold um, uh, a, a ground-based autonomous weapon system to Saudi Arabia. We, you can just imagine what they'll be using that for. Well, just finally, Stephen, to get back to the question a couple of minutes ago, what's your focus apart from this issue in the next little well, while? There's a related area, which is IPAN is, uh, is going to be doing work on the enormous costs and consequences of the U.S. alliance. Um, we're not just talking military, but we're talking environmental, political, cultural, and that's going to be launched in the next few months. It's, it's going to be a public inquiry into uh, the costs and consequences of the U.S. alliance. So that's that's a big thing that we're working on at this at this moment. Thanks very much, Stephen, for all of that. That's all right. And that is Stephen Daly from IPAN. Do have a look at their webpage, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. And it's 4.22 here at 3CR.
You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Today we focus on a small booklet authorised by the Vietnam Moratorium Committee to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the 1970 Moratorium Rally in Melbourne. The author is Joan Coxidge. Joan, let's begin that background with the French colonial power. France started the war by refusing to hand back its 80-year-old colonial possession while Vietnamese nationalists were equally determined to win their independence by throwing out the French, who continued to cream off the profits from Vietnam's rubber and rice plantations. In a 1945 declaration of independence, the Vietnamese said they had built more prisons and schools. They have mercilessly slain our patriots. They have drowned our uprisings in rivers of blood to weaken our race. They have forced us to use opium and alcohol. They have fleeced us to the backbone, impoverished our people and devastated our land. The War of Independence was fought by a united front of various nationalist political groupings with the full support of the people led by patriot Ho Chi Minh which became known as the Viet Minh. The Viet Minh fought the French for eight long years, from 1946 to 1954, when one million Vietnamese died. In May 1954, after 55 days and nights of fighting, the Viet Minh routed a 15,000-strong French army at Dien Bien Phu, ending almost a century of French colonialism in Indochina. It was a victory that shook the world, especially the Americans, who, according to official records, had been actively supporting the French war since 1950, not only advising on strategy, providing military assistance and preventing peace talks, but funding it to the tune of 80%, costing U.S. taxpayers about $1 billion a year. What was in it for the Americans? You could say that they used the the fear of communism coming down from the north. You know, we had red arrows coming down and this was translated into Liberal Party members of Parliament here. I remember going to Andrew Peacock's office. He was the Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time and fronting up to the big red arrows. Whether they believed it or not, I don't know, but certainly it was used as a propaganda weapon to justify what was going. And then they got really into it, didn't they, Americans? Yes, Oh, the Americans certainly did. Well, first of all, the U.S. Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, he did everything he could to save the French after they had their defeat. And he pressured the British to support airstrikes at Dien Bien Phu because he wanted to internationalise the war. And he even offered the French two atom bombs, which sensibly they turned down on the grounds that they might come out of it a hell of a lot worse than the Vietnamese, which seems fairly reasonable. And a day after the massive French defeat, a conference was held in Geneva, attended by the world's major powers, United States, Britain, France, the Soviet Union and China, to use their combined influence to bring peace to the region with the Geneva Agreements, which spelled out what they hoped would be a deal for peace. And on the 21st of July 1954, at the Geneva Peace Conference, Vietnam reluctantly accepted the temporary division of their country at the 17th parallel for a period of two years 
an agreement it came to bitterly regret. Before the ink was even dry, the US established the Saigon military mission to conduct sabotage and paramilitary operations in the north with the notorious Colonel Edward Lansdale in charge because the US had no intention of allowing a free election because they knew, and it was actually... I think Eisenhower made the admission that more than 80% of the people would have voted for Ho Chi Minh against former emperor and pro-Western puppet Bao Dai. And what happened then? Washington wheeled in a, another stooge, No Did Dean Diem, a Vietnamese aristocrat living in New York with absolutely no following in Vietnam. And he immediately cancelled the free election, promised for July 1956... But, of course, to do that, he needed U.S. military support and U.S. dollars to maintain control in the South, which it got in spades, with two-thirds of the entire cost being paid for by Washington. And the problem for the Vietnamese was that the Diem regime was one of the most corrupt and brutal in modern times, and it instigated a raid of terror that included wholesale jailing, torture, and extortion, forcing the South Vietnamese to fight back. And Washington, of course, as usual, fearful that a successful revolt would reunite the country, cranked up its propaganda machine with a lie that the North was invading and conquering the South, even though they knew that wasn't happening. So in December 1960, Buddhists, socialists, communists, liberals, nationalists and village leaders banded together to form the National Liberation Front, the NLF. Diem promptly labelled the Viet Cong, meaning Vietnamese communists, despite the fact that the majority of them were not. And we got the same tag here, if you remember back then. The Americans, as usual, instead of trying to end the injustices that caused the rebellion, tried to suppress it by force. And that's when they started to send so-called advisers from the United States. This was in 1962. A few months later, 5,000 Marines and 50 jet fighters were dispatched to Vietnam in response, quote, to communist expansion in Laos. And by 1963, the number had grown to 16,300 and it continued to grow and grow and grow. And such a tiny country was bombed mercilessly, mercilessly. as were the other countries Absolutely. And not much is known about the precise amount of bombs dropped on Laos, but they knew it was horrendous because it was a sort of a secret war there and they, they didn't actually know. But that's when we sort of came into the scene. Well, we knew Menzies hated communism, and he believed that China, along with all other countries that came under its control, posed a threat to Australia. That's the, that's the line he put to us. So he didn't need his arm twisted round his back? No, God, no. He was, he was jumping in very keenly, actually. So in 1951 was when we signed the ANZUS Treaty because he, what, what he wanted to do was not only strengthen ties with the United States, but he wanted to keep it involved in our region. And so in 1965, we sent a battalion of troops to Malaysia to support resistance to Indonesia's Sukarno government. And with the support of his very right-wing bloke back then, Paul Hasluck, he was the Minister for Foreign Affairs, the pair also decided to send an Australian battalion to Vietnam um, because, again, we were jumping in to get involved in Washington's latest war. But those were regular soldiers. These were regular soldiers. And 
in no- November 1964, and that was six months before we formally entered the war, and I think these dates are very interesting, Menzies introduced a compulsory selective national service scheme, conscription in other words, in a speech he gave late at night to an empty House of Representatives with neither opposition leader Arthur Caldwell, an ardent anti-conscriptionist, nor his deputy Gough Whitlam being present in the chamber, both of them having left Canberra to return to their electorates. And that was typical of what surrounded that whole wretched conscription business. Tense secrecy meant that no widespread took place until the system was entrenched firmly in place. And who were those in those early years who protested against this? It started actually in 1962. There were students and there were a number of anti-war activists who started protesting very early on in the peace. And then it grew bigger and bigger and bigger through a lot of hard work. It didn't just happen out of the blue because we could see what was happening. I mean, the difference between back then and today was journalists weren't embedded with the military like they are today and they were allowed to sort of roam free, take photographs, tell the stories of what was actually happening on the ground. And I can remember being absolutely appalled when I was seeing people, poor people, young people, children, with bombs dropping on them, with napalm, defoliants. And I saw it as an assault on life itself because it was destroying the earth. And in fact, some of the earth will never recover after all of them. Were these journalists vilified by the government? Don't recall that they were, really. I think they just got on with their job. Uh, and it wasn't until later on, you know, that the military, probably the Pentagon, decided they weren't going to allow that to happen in any future war because they saw that this had caused a mass opposition to the war. So they, they concealed it. And a lot of the, the lies that have been told in later, later wars were concealed from the people. People can't protest unless they know what they're protesting about. But a lot more is known about Vietnam now, and you can sort of see the pattern that was set back then, a shocking pattern. You know, the amount of napalm that was used and Agent Orange and dioxin, it's just appalling. And I know that um, apparently when Johnson uh, took over from President Kennedy, because he was assassinated in 63, I think, the number of missions increased 16-fold. This is Agent Orange and Dioxin, from 107 in 1962 to more than 1,600 in 1967. And 5 million acres of mangrove and upland forests were defoliated, and 500,000 acres of crops were destroyed, approximately 12% of southern Vietnam. And they're saying that today 2.1 million acres are still barren, still unproductive, and it's estimated that it will take at least 100 years of intensive replanting to bring the forests back to their original state. So, as I said, it was the salt on life itself. We've only got to see the results of the children and the grandchildren and yes. the great-grandchildren. Well, I went to a, an orphanage, Jan, in, in uh, Hanoi, actually. This was a few years ago, and I have never seen anything like it. This was an orphanage for children. These were probably the grandchildren of the soldiers who'd actually served during the war, and they were the most grossly malformed children I have ever seen and ever hoped to see. 
and they were sort of had no money to really properly look after them because there were all sorts of sanctions against Vietnam by the United States, which is another form of warfare as far as I'm concerned. That's why I think it's just wicked um, the way that they uh, deal with people. They cause the problem and they're not prepared to you know, do anything about trying to help. Well, why would they anyway? And then, of course, with napalm, it's a shocking weapon. I don't know whether people realise, some probably do, that this was a, actually a mixture of naphthenic and palmitic acids with gasoline, and it played a major role in the, Vietnam, in the Vietnam War, both in the air and on the ground. And apparently it was created by a top-secret collaboration between Harvard University and the US government in 1942. And it was used quite extensively throughout World War II, especially in Japan. And it was used extensively in Korea and, of course, in Vietnam, as we know. But in Korea, the U.S. Army claimed that napalm, this is a quote you wouldn't believe, but was the most outstanding weapon even though its consequences were amongst the most inhumane and brutal. But having been pronounced as the war's winning weapon, napalm became part and parcel of the US arsenal from the beginning of its hostilities in Vietnam. And as far as we know, the last time it was used was during America's invasion of Iraq in 2003. Well, this book is a celebration of the, the 50th anniversary of the moratorium, Talk about the time just prior to the moratorium, who the people were, how they got that moratorium together, which took over the streets of Melbourne and other places in Australia. I will. And this is a booklet that's actually um, been authorised by the Vietnam Moratorium Committee to commemorate the 50th anniversary. And it's important in the sense that there's a lot of lies being told about that war. We need to put the record straight. Well, I think that the National Service Act triggered off growing opposition to the war. I think conscription played a major role in in generating that opposition. And uh, I believe it was a pivotal moment in Australia's radical history. It grew from a handful of students and anti-war activists, as I said earlier, in 1962 until the huge moratorium rally in 1970 when more than 100,000 people took over the centre of Melbourne. We should never forget that one of the features that made it successful was the involvement of our left-wing trade unions. They were pivotal to helping it be a success. And in fact, they took action very early in the piece. But there were worries because some of you might remember that about two-thirds of Australians supported the war shown by the 1966 election when the Liberals won in a landslide. So we knew we had a hell of a lot of work to do if we were going to be successful, which we did. So we got to work. We held meetings in work sites, campuses, churches and even outside shopping centres. And we met, I think there were, the slogan we had back then was stop work to stop the war. And uh, we met on a regular basis at the Railways Institute and the Richmond Town Hall. Each group picked two delegates to represent their views who had to sign on before entering the meeting room. And God Almighty, what a motley collection of warring factions we were. We had... A, a, a wide range of ages and opinions from old left working class communists to new left university students along with a swathe of church people and everything in between. And God Almighty, I used to sit through those meetings and I think I'll shoot myself before I go through this again. And the war of words would drag on for hours and hours on end and I got the feeling that some of them liked the sound of their own voices. But amazingly, 
out of all that tangle of views, etc., we were able to come together and to unite around a common cause, and that was to stop the war. Many of us, of course, also wanted to stop the system that spawned it. We wanted a different system altogether, but that wasn't everybody, but that was certainly a lot of us. And one of our strengths, I think, was the presence of active local groups, and they worked at a grassroots level. And back then, and people have forgotten this, we had the strong support from the Victorian branch of the Australian Labor Party. Long since departed. That's right. A different party then to what it is now, but it wasn't replicated in other states or by Gough Whitlam at that time. He came on board much later in the piece because when he spoke about the war when he was going around speaking before the 1972 election, he noticed he was getting the loudest cheers and support when he mentioned the war and opposition to it. But the Victorian branch back then even held its annual state conference outside Pentridge Prison where draft-resistor John Zarb had been temporarily incarcerated to make an official very public protest. And there were other sections of the ALP um, that also were prepared to break the law. And this is the other thing. We were prepared to break the law and we knew that that inevitably meant jail and we were accepting that that was the reality of it. And many of us did go to jail. And that was your reality too. That was my reality. Tell and us. I learned a lot about the class system. And if anybody thinks we don't have a class system in this country, do go to jail, because it's amazing what you learn. Why did you go to jail? Because five women became known as the Fairly Five. Early in 1971, a small group of SOS women decided to confront the Draconian National Service Act by turning up at the Melbourne headquarters of the Department of Labor and National Service to hound out leaflets and give advice to the trickle of quite worried young men who turned up to register. Now, one turned tail stating he would not sign up and a few others announced they would become conscientious objectors and all of a sudden we had become a threat. We were a nuisance first off, then we were a threat. Commonwealth police were called in and asked us to leave. We refused and were dragged outside the office. More officials followed, accompanied by a posse of Victoria police. Same result. So we were taken to Russell Street Police Headquarters and where we were charged with willful trespass under the Summary Offences Act used by Victoria's reactionary Balti government to shut us up. Now, we had to wait months and months before we fronted to the Melbourne Magistrates Court. It turned out to be Easter Thursday. And we fronted up to a magistrate who was very well known for his far-right views. Now, I've called him Mr League of Rights because that's what he belonged to, a far-right organisation. And we, our, we knew we were heading for trouble because all the other cases were dealt with. And we were sitting there. It was getting later and later in the afternoon and we were the very last case to be heard. The media had gone except for one lone ABC reporter. So when Mr League of Rights gave us 14 days in jail without the option of a fine, he was able to report it on, and it ended up in all the national bulletins and was picked up by other media outlets and then it did cause shockwaves throughout the country because a lot of people gave up their holidays. This was Easter and we had tremendous support. There was even a 24-hour stoppage on the docks. And I think people were shocked to learn that the mothers of 25 children 
felt so strongly about conscription in the war that they were prepared to go to jail. And I think it was a very, it was a seminal moment in the anti-war movement and I, I think it played the most important part. Did you believe that you could go to jail? At the beginning? Well, as the day wore on, we were thinking of all sorts of possibilities. We thought we might have been given the option of a fine, uh, and we were pressured, in fact, I think by Clyde Holding at the time, to accept some sort of, um, you know, weakening of our position. We said, no, we uh, accept what has happened. We thought it was very important to just stick with what we were doing, and so we didn't accept any offer of, you know, Lightening of the load, so to speak. Did you serve the 14 days? No, we got, this always amused people, we got off on good behaviour. <laughs> Nobody will believe that, but we did. I did a bit of drawing while I was there too, which was good, because it did capture some of the horrible conditions back then fairly. And of course, in comparison to the other women, we were lucky, we had support, they did not. Most of them were prostitutes who were there for non-payment of fines, and they were in a cycle of, you know, going in and out of jail because they'd come out of jail and the police would be waiting for them where they'd be charged with uh, not paying for a fine and back they'd go again. So relatively we were lucky because we had enormous support and they did not. By the late 60s, police and protesters were playing a cat and mouse game but at least we were winning the propaganda war. For the first time, a majority of Australians wanted our troops brought back home. And as more and more young men refused to register, the government slowed down its call-up notices and introduced measures to cl- classify pacifists as conscientious objectors, whether they'd applied for exemption or not. By May 1970, there were some 72 non-compliers who were supposed to be issued with call-up notices automatically once they denounced their, their intention not to register. And our civil disobedience campaign escalated and they broadened out. People engaged in a range of highly publicised illegal activities, sometimes acting singly, sometimes acting together. Filling of falsy actions to help bugger up the system were extremely popular, so popular that the government made it harder to get hold of the forms. An underground draft resistance centre was set up to provide safe houses for the young men on the run. People from all walks of life volunteered despite risking one year's jail as laid down in the Crimes Act and were equally happy to drive them from one safe house to another. From time to time, the draft resistors would pop up at prearranged rallies, student gatherings and churches and then be whisked away before they could be arrested. A few police were sympathetic on an individual level, but there were some who harboured a strong ideological hatred of everything we stood for. I remember an all-night vigil in front of the US consulate during a midnight-to-dawn shift where, when energy levels had fallen to zero, and a large fellow emerged from a shadowy corner of Commercial Road and started bellowing at the top of his lungs that we must keep walking a time when the protesters wished there was a police presence to curb his fury when someone recognised that he was not only a policeman but a very senior one at that. You were disturbing his sleep. God, he didn't have to be there, but he was. Can I mention one part we haven't touched on, and that is the National Service Act. Okay, well, Menzies brought this in in November 1964, six months before we formally entered the war. 
And he adduced the, the conscription in a speech, as I said earlier, late at night to an empty house of representatives. Now, the scheme required 20-year-old males to register with the Department of Labor and National Service, who were then randomly selected in a lottery system by picking marbles with birthday dates out of a barrel, a ratio that varied according to the number required by the army. If selected, the unlucky ones were deemed to be conscripted for two years' service in the regular army, which meant serving in Vietnam after the Defence Act was amended in May 1965. And this was reduced in, to 18 months in 1971, followed by three years in the reserve. Now, failure to register at the correct time, notify a change of address, attend a medical examination, report for the call-up or make false or misleading statements were illegal. And can I say this? I think it's important to remember. And while historians tend to refer to conscripts as men, it should be remembered that during the 1960s, 20-year-olds were legally underaged, were not allowed to vote, to drink or take out a bank mortgage and yet were being forced to kill or die for imperialism. Non-compliers had to front up to the magistrate's court where they could receive a jail sentence equivalent to the time spent in national service, two years. But unlike regulars, they were not entitled to a military pension. Fourteen were prosecuted and sent to military prisons. Later, they served their time in civilian jails. And the only way out of military service was to fail the medical, become a conscientious conscientious objector, or confront the system full on and become a draft resister and swiftly disappear from view by taking refuge in the safe houses that I've mentioned. Some were allowed to join the citizens' military forces because they're in reserved occupations such as farming. And it's pertinent, I think, to remember that this was the second attempt to bring in conscription. It happened during World War I. That got roundly defeated, and it happened again in the... 60s? Yes, we have a, well, that's right, in 64, we have a residual dislike to the, to the system. And in fact, it's interesting to note in World War I that the people who swayed that vote were soldiers themselves. They voted against conscription. I don't think they do it again. I don't think they dare bring it in again because you'd reckon twice is enough. Can I just say one thing to which is very, very important today? And that's the impact of war on the environment. This is a statement from Ban Ki-moon, who was the UN Secretary-General between 2007 and 2016. The environment has long been a silent casualty of war and armed conflict. From the contamination of land and the destruction of forests to the plunder of natural resources and the collapse of management systems, the environmental consequences of war are widespread and devastating. It's a good statement to remember when people are concerned about the environment and don't always make that necessary link. And we move on to the 8th of May 2020. What's planned? Well, at the moment I can say we're planning to have a celebration at Victorian Trades Hall in Ligon Street, Carlton, which will be at 6pm and we're having speakers and uh, there will be a lot of memorabilia around and something light to eat, but it's to get together and celebrate what was a very important event and one that I think should be remembered too at that time when we were organising and having all our various actions. 
So we had a lot of laughter back then. It was done with humour and optimism. It's hard to sort of think back, but back then we were very optimistic that we could not only stop the war, but change the system. Still trying. Still trying. Just finally, Joan, what did that period mean for you? I think it meant that I, I didn't stop at the end of the Vietnam War. I felt the necessity to go on and get involved in a whole lot of other actions, which I did, and I've never stopped, whether it was the uh, anti-nuclear, women's rights, civil rights, and a few of us started the Committee for the Abolition of Political Police, which was a direct consequence of our involvement in the war, when we were always followed by snoops. And back then, a few of us thought, well, who the hell are they? We wanted them to know a lot more about them, and, uh, and then we took them on. I can't say we won, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you, had, you had a good time while you were doing We it. laughed. We did some very important things. We put out a lot of literature to explain people the secret government and the secret treaties and how we were being totally dominated by the United States and that we were anything but a free and independent country. Thanks, Joan. Pleasure. Joan Coxidge, activist, writer, journalist, and the booklet is called Background to the Vietnam War, authorised by the Vietnam Moratorium Committee to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the 1970 Moratorium Rally in Melbourne and there's a Facebook page, 50th anniversary of the first anti-Vietnam War memorial. Moratorium, I mean. It's um, coming up to just on five, ten to five. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Hi, I'm Carolyn Akuta, and I'm one of the Greens in the ACT Leaders Assembly. I'm here today because whatever you think about Julian Assange, free information is essential for every part of our democracy. If we don't know what's going on, how can we make the right democratic decisions? And of course I also think that the crimes that he uncovered, the war crimes he uncovered are, are horrific and things that need to be remembered and acted on and we need to change what we're doing. And I very much hope that he is not extradited to the United States. He's an Australian citizen. He should come home to Australia. How do you deal with the accusations that he's put people's lives at risk and challenged and made fragile a whole security system that's supposed to keep citizens in Western countries safe? Well, this is a long reply and I probably don't have enough information. My understanding, which could be incorrect, is that a lot of the information that was published that included names, uh, WikiLeaks didn't intend to be published with names, that it was published more quickly than they wanted to and they were trying to do more redaction of names. I, but I don't have inside knowledge of that obviously, but that's what I have read. The other thing that I would say obviously is that the security state is not keeping the world safe. I mean, okay, sure, I, I'm safe in Canberra right now, but there are thousands or millions of people who are not safe because of this and so 
yes, I'm not. I'm not saying that every. I don't know enough to talk about whether every single thing that WikiLeaks put out was totally in the public interest. But as a whole, free information is in the public interest, and what we have now is definitely not in the public interest. Well, thanks for admitting that you didn't actually know everything, but after all, there were hundreds of thousands of emails that were released through WikiLeaks. You'd have to be doing a PhD to have read them all. Thanks so much for talking. And that's Caroline Courtier from the Greens, who was speaking at the Support Julian Assange rally in Canberra yesterday. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. On the line now is Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Let's start today, Bob, with the coronavirus and the biosafety protocol. What's the connection if there is one? The the biosafety protocol is um, protocol to the Convention on Biological Diversity, which was um, passed 20 years ago by um, most of the nations of the world, not including, of course, Australia. So the transfer, handling and use of genetically engineered organisms around the world is uh, regulated by this biosafety protocol and because Australia is not a member of it, it concerns us that particularly genetically engineered microorganisms uh, could be in international trade or could be moved around the world with insufficient uh, surveillance as far as the Australians, the Americans, Canadians and one or two other countries are concerned. Why doesn't Australians sign it? Well, they've consistently said that uh, they think the protocol is a um, non-tariff barrier to trade. They believe that other countries would misbehave themselves and impose unreasonable conditions on biosafety grounds to prevent Australian exports going into their markets. It's a shonky argument. It never stood up to scrutiny in the first place. But the countries that have got surpluses of grains and oil seeds and beverages and other things to trade into international markets have um, used it from their point of view as a lever to promote free trade. And we say that biosafety should trump trade, that uh, we need biosafety, and that's particularly shown by the spread of things like the coronavirus and other uh, biosecurity problems like feral animals and plants as well. So it's just another layer of potential protection, I think, for our environment and for public health which the Australians should join up to. We've resisted that for 20 years, despite calls from time to time around the community for Australia to join the biosafety protocol. And how many countries haven't signed it? Well, just a handful. There are 195 countries and 172 member countries at the moment belong to the biosafety protocol and enforce its provisions. We think that those that are holding out, those few that have said they won't do it, are being unreasonable, that trade is simply a pretext, that uh, keeping people and their environment safe, particularly in this era of global climate change, should be our number one priority, and that trade pretexts should not have a look in when it comes to a debate about 
what our priorities are. Our national priorities should be now. And I, I think that in the case of coronavirus, our regulators and our medical community seem to have done a pretty good job of um, sorting out the situation. But we need that collaborative framework which is provided by the biosafety protocol to add an additional level of safety. How could it add that different, that extra level? How would it work? Well, it would be through cooperation between all the countries who are parties to the convention. Its primary focus is on protecting the environment. It's under the Convention on Biological Diversity. But I think that it also um, does assist in issues like biosecurity, ensuring that in the transmission of baggage and shipments of goods between countries in the course of trade that uh, we don't get new feral animals, plants and microorganisms into our environment and that uh, public health and safety is also protected. It's just another international mechanism and I think that we need a collaborative approach and not to stand outside this framework and say, no, it's affecting our trade or we think it might affect our trade because indeed I think that's a, a pretty shonky sort of argument. We should join up, we should be part of the team, we should be a team player on uh, making sure that uh, Australia's environment and its people are secure, uh, particularly when it comes to genetically manipulated organisms, which is what the biosafety protocol primarily uh, focuses on. Talk now about an issue that we've spoken about for maybe many months now, and that was the pending bill to come to Parliament in South Australia, which could see the end of the moratorium on GM. It's finally been introduced by South Australia Best. Who are they? Well, they're one of the minor parties. They're the remnants of the Xenophon team. You remember Nick Xenophon was um, running in the last election and so on. Well, some of his members did get elected, although Nick didn't, and he's pretty much withdrawn from politics now. It's been an interesting time because the government introduced in October and November of last year, firstly, regulations to end the moratorium on genetically manipulated crops in South Australia, which is due to run until 2025. And those regulations were rejected by the Parliament. The Greens, South Australia Best and the Labor Party got together in the Upper House and said, we want to be consulted. Passing regulations is not satisfactory and we're going to disallow them. So they did that. And then as a result, the day after the government then brought in its own bill, tried to force that through the Parliament. And again, it was rejected. South Australia Best and the Labor Party both said, well, we would be willing to lift the ban on genetically manipulated crops in the state, uh, but only provided certain other conditions were put into the legislation. So South Australia Best, now in the, new t in the current year, has now introduced a new bill which has quite a lot of conditions in it that really protect the neighbours to make sure that if GM contamination is to be prevented, the neighbours of the farmers who are going to grow the GM crops are required to be notified. Uh, there'd be a 10-metre buffer zone, which, of course, is ridiculously small, but nonetheless a buffer zone that the EPA, the Environment Protection Authority, could be called in to check on the situation, that there would be a way of claiming damages in the case of GM contamination, and all of this would be uh, provided that there was a threshold of 0.9% for allowable contamination. So it's a pretty comprehensive bill, 
But uh, they've reintroduced that. And meanwhile, the government uh, has passed further regulations to deregulate, which we expect in the next couple of weeks will be disallowed again. And also they've reintroduced the bill that was defeated last year. Very weird. So we've got two bills and a set of regulations in the parliament. And at the moment, we expect the government's bill and its regulations to be rejected by the three parties on the crossbench in the upper house. And that means that the South Australian best bill, with all these conditions in it, might get a Guernsey. It's possible that the ALP would support it. But we're still very confident that the Greens won't. And as a result, it possibly would be defeated as well. So we might end up with the status quo of um, extending the current GM moratorium in South Australia till 2025. And that's what the Parliament had previously decided going back a couple of years. And I'd say that um, that would be the best outcome from our point of view. How many seats do the Greens have? Well, the Greens have got two in the upper house. South Australia Best has got two. There's one other individual independent and then the rest of the of the seats the ALP and the government and the government is short of a majority by just two it's very line ball we think we can win it by one or two votes again it's going to be very interesting I mean the the interesting thing about all this is that if the deregulation goes ahead the government has said that Kangaroo Island will be left out of the equation so it would continue to be a GM free part of the state and the reason that it would be remaining GM-free is that it has contracts for its um, grains and its oil seeds and its beverages, particularly for sale into Japan, at very substantial premiums because they are GM-free. Our argument in all of this has been from the beginning that if Kangaroo Island can do it, why can't the rest of the South Australian farmers and food industry also go GM-free? And indeed, what happened was that um, when the decision was made a couple of years ago, we saw the food industry in South Australia pick up the idea, well, we're GM-free, let's make, make an advantage out of that, and have started to label their products and to market them both in throughout Australia and overseas as GM-free, and have started to get to build premiums for those excellent products um, as clean, green, and GM-free. And yet the government is now apparently absolutely determined to scuttle those advantages that the food industry has at the behest of itself, the, the government, but under pressure from Grain Producers South Australia, which is a lobby group of some of the growers. It's a very small group. We know that there are only a couple of hundred of them out of the 5,000 5, growers in South Australia. Only a couple of hundred want to grab GM and run with it. So it's pretty dog in the manger, I think, that this small group of people who think they can get an advantage out of growing a crop that will be sprayed more often and at higher doses with Roundup herbicide and have no other advantage. The product will be sold uh, at a lower rate than the GM-free varieties uh, are still willing to push forward with this. It's a pretty unsatisfactory situation, really. So what they're saying is that the farmers on Kangaroo Island will be able to keep their contracts with countries like Japan because they're GM-free. What happens to the farmers on the mainland? What happens to their contracts? They must have contracts with places like Japan. Where do they go now if this goes well, through? Well, they, they'll just go into the, um, into the general canola supply. 
because the only thing on offer at the moment is um, genetically manipulated canola that can be sprayed with Roundup to kill weeds more efficiently. That, of course, has now got the problem that uh, many overseas markets are starting to say, look, we don't want your products if they've got Roundup residues in them. We know that Roundup now is um, the cause of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in many users of the product got itself into the food supply as a residue and maybe having impacts on human health as well as its impacts on the environment. And so the discussion about Roundup is mixed up with this decision whether or not to allow the genetically manipulated plants. Of course, in the longer term, there might be other GM crops that come along as well. And we see that there have been field trials of GM wheat in Australia in the past. There's still work going on in laboratories. And one of the big concerns is that uh, if GM wheat is introduced, that would be a real killer. It's been rejected everywhere else in the world, and we would be the first off the cab rank if we went with GM wheat. So it would certainly affect our capacity to market those grains into overseas markets. It's something that the GM-free farmers are very concerned about indeed. In fact, today, there's um, a briefing for parliamentarians in the parliament. It was on at lunchtime today. Dr John Paul, who's an environmental scientist uh, interested in organics in particular from the University of Tasmania, is briefing the parliament along with Bob Mackley, who's interesting as well because he's a grower from Western Victoria who had his farm contaminated with GM canola in 2011. They'll be meeting the parliamentarians and we hope are convincing them of the need in this current debate in the parliament to bring in measures which will protect the livelihoods of the GM free farmers from contamination and entrench their right to be compensated if indeed the government gets its way and goes ahead uh, with lifting the GM ban. That's all on I was on at lunchtime today and this evening in Adelaide there'll also be a public meeting at which uh, everybody's free to attend. The speakers there will include others, including Judy, Judy Carmen from the Institute of Health and Environmental Research and somebody from the food industry to inform the public better about this debate as well. We've got a campaign running. It's going well and we think we're still in with a chance of retaining GM-free Uh, South Australia until 2025, uh, following Tasmania's decision late last year to extend its moratorium until 2029, again on marketing grounds because there are huge advantages to be gained by marketing foods as GM-free. Australian and world markets shoppers are very committed to this and uh, we're hopeful that uh, farmers will, and, and the parliament, Uh, we'll see the merits of it as well. Looking at Victoria and an issue like this, where do we stand? Well, it's interesting because one of the things we've been saying to South Australian farmers and the food industry there is that uh, GM canola has been grown now for um, 10 years in Western Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. And the current situation is that the discounts for GM versus GM-free canola in Western Australia is $70 per tonne. It's about 40 in Victoria and around 35 to 40 in New South Wales. So the growers who are, have been growing GM canola have been constantly suffering these discounts 
in comparison with the non-GM varieties of canola that they grow also. And uh, as a result, the number of growers actually producing GM canola and the number of silos that will actually accept it, will handle it and market it for the growers, has been falling. So in WA, there are only two silos accepting GM canola. In Victoria, there are three or four. And in New South Wales, only a couple as well. The situation looks very grim for the future of GM canola anyway. And so we've been saying the price is poor. You pay more for the seed. It costs you more to segregate and transport it. And when you market it, you get a discount for the crop as well. So farmers have suffered these um, disadvantages now for a decade. Most of them have driven up growing it. As a result, the the traders are not very interested in it either. We get premiums because, particularly in the European market, it can go into that market which is GM-free, provided it's um, tested here and given um, a tick. It can go into, uh, through Holland in particular, be used in animal feed and for biofuel production, mostly not for human consumption directly, uh, without any questions asked, and they are prepared to pay a big premium for it. GM is just a bad deal all around. And why South Australians would want to grow it and take the hit on their GM-free reputation and their capacity to market their clean, green and GM-free foods around Australia and overseas just defies belief, really. But at the last election, the Marshall government made a promise that it would lift the ban, and it just seems absolutely determined to do so. We think it's irrational. We've argued the point now for the last two years with them over it. At the moment, they still appear determined, and uh, we'll know within the next couple of weeks, I guess, uh, which way the Parliament decides to fall, because the government has the numbers in the lower house. It can pass its bills there, but the crossbench in the upper house, or the opposition and the crossbench, just have the numbers on this, and we think uh, that the ban should stay till 2025, We've argued our case very strongly to farmers and also city folks. The pressure has been on the government and the other parties to do the right thing. And with a bit of luck, our campaign, we hope, will win. You're listening to 3CR and it's Tuesday home time. And I'm speaking with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Just staying here in Victoria, if a farmer is GM, how difficult or easy is it to convert back to non-GM? It would take a while to be sure that those paddocks where they've grown it have converted. In the case of a transition from growing GM to organic, we do know the time frame for that, and that's five years. Even that's a little bit shaky as far as we're concerned because we do know that canola seed, whether it's GM or conventional, can last in the environment probably for at least a dozen years under some circumstances. In fact, the reason that Tasmania is so committed now to being GM-free is that in 1999, they ran a field trial there. One of the companies ran a field trial, which is now went broke as a result of that and other contamination incidents around the world. They had the field trial, and there were over 50 sites that were contaminated, and the government said, no more, we're not having a bar of this. took them almost 15 years to clean up the environment from that initial contamination at those 50 sites. So they gradually got them clean, but they'd still find a few volunteers up to 15 years after their initial decision 
that they would decontaminate the environment and go back to being GM-free. That's the sort of time frame that you can envisage where you may get some uh, Roundup-tolerant canola uh, still growing in those paddocks. So going back is possible, but it takes time, it takes vigilance, and it takes effort. And, of course, there will be costs involved for the farmer. Another aspect of it is, of course, that the seed is a proprietary product, so Monsanto had in its contract that it could enter farms, it could see whether the GM canola was being grown there, it could charge a fee if it found it was being grown there without the contract having been signed by the particular farmer. And we saw in the USA especially that a number of farmers were sued over GM crops being grown on their properties without a relevant contract. The owner of the seed patent also has an interest in this, may be in a position to monitor the situation. And now that it's Bayer, because Bayer bought Monsanto a couple of years ago uh, for $63 billion, uh, Bayer is now in the hot seat as far as its obligation to concern. So the people who are suing in the USA for their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Bayer is now responsible for settling those claims. And again, if there were GM contamination, it would be Bayer, not Monsanto, that would be responsible to compensate the farmers. And the court cases are continuing by people who believe that they've been made very ill from Roundup? Some cases are continuing. Um, Most of them are now in some kind of mediation or negotiation because there are thought to be something like 100,000 complainants or plaintiffs in the USA who have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They all claim as a result of their exposure to Roundup herbicides. There is a case coming on again in California in May. Uh, It's scheduled to start. And California is a particular case because uh, it will expedite cases where a plaintiff is um, terminally ill. You can bring on a case to try to settle the case before the person dies. We've seen that um, already in three cases over the last um, 18 months in which the plaintiffs were each awarded something of the order of $80 million each after the appeals were heard. The case that's to come on in May is another expedited case. The law firm that's running it has got about 6,000 other plaintiffs, so it'll be interesting to see how this one goes as well. The juries in in these cases have been heard a lot of evidence. I mean, some of them ran for six weeks. There were multiple experts coming in. But the thing that was the crunch as far as the amount of money awarded by juries was that Monsanto hid the evidence that its product was unsafe and would cause cancers, which it's known for probably 30 years at least, if not longer. The evidence was hidden. The people were harmed from using the product and not being adequately warned that it was a dangerous product. And as a result, the juries have awarded substantial punitive damages so in the case where they awarded $80 million, around about $5 million was for direct compensation for the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and the damage that was done. But the balance of the award was a punitive damage because the company lied about what it knew and put those people more or less deliberately at risk uh, by not warning them that they uh, were using a seriously dangerous product. In fact, in its early advertising, Monsanto had said and other so-called experts had said Roundup was safe enough to drink and so people were not um, cautious enough about it 
And as a result, we've now got some 100,000 or more people who have uh, contracted non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as a result are wanting to go to court to be compensated. The company, for its part, as I mentioned, is in negotiations. Bayer has said that it wants to settle for around $10 billion. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but when you've got 100,000 plaintiffs, you're only talking about an award of something like $100,000 each. So whether that will actually fly or not is unclear at this point, or whether the cases will actually have to go to court uh, to get fair and reasonable compensation for all the plaintiffs. So it's up in the air. Uh, it's going to be long-running, but this uh, next case, the brilliant case, is going to be in court in May in California. The ones in other states have not gone ahead at this stage because of the negotiations underway. Pretty wait and see, but I think in the end you'd say that the company should pay and should pay handsomely for what Monsanto did uh, to the users of Roundup. Finally, Bob, you've talked about the harm that now people are suffering because of Roundup. What does Roundup do to the crops and the land and the environment? Surely there's harm there as well. Well, it is the most used uh, herbicide in the world. It's used in urban as well as farm environments. On farms, it can affect the uh, microorganisms and soil used in natural environments, of course, as it is used by land care and so on. It's used to try to control weeds, but it can survive in soil under the right conditions for quite a long time and have other impacts as well. But I think where the movement and where the consciousness at the moment is, is this impact on users. And of course, many local councils and other weed management or land management authorities who want to manage weeds are using Roundup without due care and very liberally in all sorts of environments. So, for example, we see kids in thongs and shorts and t-shirts spraying Roundup along our roadsides, on footpaths, around kinders and schools, in our suburban and urban areas. Local councils worldwide are thinking very carefully about the impact that those activities and, the, and its use by home gardeners as well might be having on the people who are exposed to it. The persistent users, the, the 100,000 in the USA who are most harmed appear to be people who have used it over a decade or two consistently and have not taken adequate precautions. We've now got the company saying, well, the Environment Protection Authority and the agricultural regulators didn't require us to tell our customers on the label so we shouldn't be liable for the consequences, even though we knew what the consequences would be. They're trying to put the regulators up as having been an arbiter because the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority here in Australia, other regulators in USA and even some in Europe are still saying, look, Roundup is safe to use provided you follow the label. And the big problem there is that the label doesn't issue significant or substantial warnings about the impact of these toxic formulations because glyphosate, the active ingredient, is only one of the ingredients in what's a toxic mixture. The problem is, for regulators and for the public, what's in the mixture is a proprietary information, so it's secret, and the regulators don't require the companies to tell them what's in the Roundup mixture to pretend, and it is only pretense, that they actually adequately regulate these toxic products. You'd fall about laughing if it wasn't so serious for the people who are impacted, but that's the situation at the moment. 
so our regulators are essentially rendered ineffective and powerless. The label is meaningless and people are unnecessarily exposing themselves to toxics. Our councils, and we're running a campaign on this, we're saying to councils, you are going to be liable if your citizens and the users of uh, Roundup in your local area are harmed by this and you'd better do something about it. So we're seeing a, a, quite a stampede now of councils to stop using Roundup. Some of them, unfortunately, are starting to use other chemical herbicides that might be just as toxic as Roundup or more so. But a fair few of them are moving in the direction of using things like um, high-temperature steam, so-called weed steamers, to control weeds, uh, particularly in sensitive areas like around schools, kindergarten, and other high high traffic areas within their uh, local municipalities. We hope that that trend will continue. All of the 750-odd councils in Australia will gradually move out of Roundup and in the direction of uh, using other non-toxic um, systems, which could be uh, even grazing goats, which is actually used on the Eastern Freeway in some hard-to-get parts on steep land and so on. There are some organic products that are made out of um, natural products that work quite well. Uh, other places like golf links. Golf links are another terrible toxic mixture uh, where um, they should be phasing out the use of uh, the chemicals as well with the wash-off from golf links into waterways because waterways are exposed as well are, are a real issue. You've got large areas of, um, of grass being routinely sprayed and managed to keep weeds out of them they're undulating they've usually got waterways going through them and so we think there should be more testing in our waterways and rivers as well for these for the residues of these synthetic chemicals the other pressure on this is interesting in that importers of food products around the world from places like australia are starting to say also that vietnam for instance has now banned the use of roundup totally so we have a quite a sizable market for grains uh, into Vietnam, and Vietnam is now saying, well, we don't have a um, approval for Roundup anymore, so any products that come into our market have got to have zero tolerance for any residues of Roundup. And the first uh, people we've seen uh, cabs off the rank on this have actually been brewers of beer. The brewers of beer in Southeast Asia and also in Australia uh, have said the malting barley that's used for producing beer is required to have zero tolerance for any Roundup residues. And so in Western Australia, the cooperative bulk handlers have now got a special segregation, which is for malting barley. They will now not accept any malting barley that has been sprayed during its lifetime with Roundup. And so the farmers are having to transition other ways of managing their weeds if they're producing that product. And we hope that that will gradually start to spin off to other crops as well because there are still many crops where prior to harvest, the farmer comes in, cuts the crop, lays it down and sprays with uh, Roundup and other chemicals to desiccate the crop in order to make it easier to harvest, to get rid of the uh, green leaves and so on. And that tends to leave residues in the, in the crop as well and is a, is a practice that ought to be phased out because those residues are then getting into the food supply. Plenty of work there for the future for Genetics Network, and that was 
Bob Phelps. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Brother Peter Bray is the Vice-Chancellor of Bethlehem University in Palestine and is in Australia to meet with Australians and impart the experience of living under Israeli occupation in the West Bank. Before coming to Australia, he visited New Zealand, his country of birth, and I asked him about that time there. Okay, well, I arrived in uh, in Auckland on the 26th of January after our Board of Regents meeting in Rome and uh, stayed with the brothers there. And then uh, the uh, in New Zealand, there's a group called Palestinian Solidarity Network, Aotearoa, and they organised an opportunity for me to do a, uh, a radio interview with Jim Mora in Auckland and Radio New Zealand. And then uh, they organised a gathering for me there, and I spoke to probably 80 or 90 people there, very responsive audience. I then had the opportunity to go down to Rotorua, and uh, the brothers uh, uh, have a La school there, and I spent the night there with Patrick Walsh, the principal, who he and his family had stayed with us in Bethlehem two years ago. And then I had uh, 10 days with my sister in Napier, which was really lovely. And then I went on to Wellington, and again, the uh, network had organised uh, an opportunity for me to do a radio uh, interview there. Uh, and again, a, a, a public meeting with probably 80 or 90 people again. And again, a very responsive and uh, welcoming audience. And then uh, I had meetings in Kaikoura. The reason for being back in New Zealand at that time was because all of the New Zealand brothers had gathered in Kaikoura, where one of our uh, old brothers uh, has retired. And then I went on to Christchurch, and um, the network had organised another gathering there, and probably 120 or so people. One of the things that uh, touched me there was I had a, a chance uh, before the gathering started to speak to one of the Muslim men who had been shot in the mosque in March of last year. So that was quite moving. and. Uh, for me, because I'd been in uh, Christchurch in, uh, in early April last year, a couple of weeks after the shooting, and did a presentation there. And it brought home to me, I suppose, that uh, really there's nowhere safe in the world anymore. And uh, that uh, the way people had responded uh, in New Zealand to that shooting has uh, just found uh, quite inspiring, in fact. And so to have the chance to speak to somebody who had been caught in that, I found very moving. And, and he responded very well to what I had to say and particularly what we are doing with the Muslim students at Bethlehem University. And I came to uh, Australia, to Sydney, uh, the day after that. So there was plenty of interest in Palestine around New Zealand? I, uh, well, I found uh, there was increasing interest. And um, I was saying to the brothers here last night that... Uh, my impression is that, uh, you know, people in Australia and New Zealand are, uh, are very conscious of a fair go for people. And uh, I think what is happening and what people are becoming aware of is that, uh, you know, the Palestinians are not getting a fair go. And that, therefore, there is a move, I think, 
growing awareness of the need uh, to give them a fair go. And I, I think I'm finding anyhow the way that people are responding to what I have to say. And I'd have to say my focus is on our students and the impact the occupation uh, has on the, the life of our students and the unpredictability of that life. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to begin with what might be a day in the life of a student at your university. Mm-hmm. You'd be quite aware of the, the, the trouble that Chinese yeah. students are having to get back to Australia to begin yes, their studies. Yeah, I've heard that, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when we think about Palestinian children... 46% of our students come from East Jerusalem, so they have to come through the wall. But our students, say, from Hebron, are not allowed into Jerusalem, so they don't have to worry about the wall. So their experience in coming to Bethlehem University is quite different because they can be confronted with the flying checkpoints where they don't know when a checkpoint's going to be uh, just stopped on the road. But the ones coming from East Jerusalem, you know, I talked about this last night, that... Um, when they, most of them come by bus, and when they get on the bus in the morning, they really don't know whether they're going to get to Bethlehem University on time for classes because often the bus is stopped once or twice. In some cases, we've had three times by different groups of Israeli military uh, where they can get on the bus and ask for IDs, they can uh, interrogate individuals, they can arrest individuals, they can put a gun in the student's face or whatever. Really, uh, students don't know what's going to happen as they seek to come to Bethlehem University. And it's that sort of unpredictability that is a real concern of mine because, you know, what we are wanting is for Bethlehem University to provide quality higher education for these students. Given the experience they might have on the way to uh, the the campus uh, influences the way they engage in their classes and whatever. So what we are trying to do is to provide an opportunity or to provide an environment, I suppose, where students can feel safe, that when they step onto campus, I want them to know they're safe, that nobody's going to arrest them on our campus, nobody's going to interrogate them there, nobody's going to put a gun in their face on our campus. It's a safe place for them. You know, we're a La Salle University. We follow in the footsteps of Jean-Baptiste de La Salle. And one of the key things of his approach to schooling was the importance of the relationship between teachers and students. So I keep emphasizing to our faculty and staff about the importance of them being brothers and sisters to one another and then older brothers and sisters to the young people entrusted to us. And, and so I want our students to know that these adults that are engaging with them are their older brothers and sisters who are really looking out for them, who really care about what's happening to them. And then the third thing I try to emphasise is the predictability of life at Bethlehem University, that, you know, there are classes at certain times, there are expectations in classes, there are assignments they have to do, exams have to sit in that safe, caring and predictable environment. I'm hoping that, uh, you know, they develop peaceful minds and peaceful hearts and that, in effect, we help to create a little oasis of peace in the midst of all of the stuff that's going on around them. So, and I think listening to, uh, to our graduates who reflect back on their time at Bethlehem University, I think uh, we're creating that sort of peaceful oasis that influences the way students engage with one another uh, and engage in class and whatever. And then uh, see the, the ones from East Jerusalem, the, the more difficult time is when they're going back 
because they uh, they are stopped at the checkpoint going into Jerusalem, and they have to get off the bus. They have to show their ID, and you know that's where it's possible that uh, the, the soldiers will interrogate them or or hold them until the next bus while they interrogate them or whatever. Coming and going uh, is uh, or can be a very um, unpredictable time for them. And do your staff also suffer these harassments? Yes. I'm not sure how many of our, there's quite a number of our staff live in East Jerusalem and have to come through the wall. But yeah, any Palestinian, you know, I, I, with a New Zealand passport, have no problem getting through the checkpoint. My challenge is getting to the checkpoint. Like I can go down to the main check, with well, the 300 checkpoint it's called in Bethlehem, and there could be 30 cars ahead of me. So I have to wait, get up to there, and all of them are Palestinian, uh, just about. The soldiers and the security people go through their passport, can go through their car or whatever. But when, you know, often I don't even have to open my passport. I just show them the New Zealand passport and they just wave me through. I'm often very surprised at the restraint of the Palestinians when I see how some of them are treated by these young soldiers. I'm just amazed that there, there are not more reactions from them. But, uh, you know, the resilience of our students in coming through, speaking to a young woman um, two years or three years ago now, just before she graduated from East Jerusalem, and asked her, you know, what, what's it been like being a student at Bethlehem University and uh, having to come through the wall each day? And she thought for a while, and then she said, the worst part is coming in the, in the bus up to the checkpoint and wondering, you know, what's it going to be today? Is a soldier going to wave the bus through? Is a soldier going to get on and uh, have a look at their passports? Is a soldier going to get on and take all their passports and have them sit there for half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half while their IDs are being uh, checked? Are they going to be herded off the bus to to stand in the sun while that is being done? Are they going to be individually interrogated? Are they going to be strip searched? All of those things had happened to her. And so when she's coming in the bus up to the checkpoint, she's wondering, you know, what's it going to be today? One of the things I find fascinating is that every day she came back to Bethlehem University, and it's that sort of resilience, that sort of resistance to that occupation and the restrictions that they're placed under that I just find incredibly inspiring, really. And I would believe that even before children reach university in their primary or secondary education they it's been impacted by the occupation as well oh for sure oh very definitely like last year our dean of students his house was broken into at half past one in the morning he was beaten up in front of his young children uh, his oldest was seven i think uh and he was taken away and put in jail and then he uh, he was released uh, three days later i think it was no apology or anything, but uh, they mentioned that uh, they'd got the wrong guy. That is not an unusual experience for Palestinian families. So, you know, his children were traumatised in seeing that happening to them. And, you know, down in Hebron particularly, you know, where the uh, settlers have taken over the uh, part of the inner city there and the clashes there and the way in which the Palestinians are treated there and, and prevented from go or some at, at times the students are prevented from going to school uh, with Israeli soldiers you know uh, with their guns preventing them so yeah that, it is a traumatic experience for these young people are there threats to the university from the settlers or are they far enough away that they no, don't bother you um, 
No, we, uh, well, in, uh, this is my 12th year there, and in that time uh, we have not had any uh, Israeli soldiers or any settlers near us. But in the history of Bethlehem University, we've been closed 12 times, once for three years. This was before 1993, and then again in 2002 when the siege of the Church of the Nativity was on. We were locked down for 40 days at that stage. But uh, in recent years, we haven't had any, any problems at all that way. And talking about the families of the students at your university, they must have made and are still making huge sacrifices to send the children to university. They are, but our, our operating budget is around $14 million, but our students contribute uh, about 47% of that. So it, it costs uh, us about $4,000 to have a student on campus for a year, but really no student pays more than half of that, and then we, we fundraise for the other half. And then we have students who can't even afford you know, the $2,000, uh, or depending on their course, it could be as low as fourteen or $1,500 for the year. And so we have scholarships and, uh, and financial aid uh, for those students. Some families really struggle, and, and there are some students who are trying to study full-time and then work in order to pay for their, for their education. And in some cases, particularly in families where the father has been injured or has been shot, the boy or girl uh, is earning money to keep the family as well. And so there are, for some of the students, it's, it's quite stressful, uh, the whole financial situation. And, and we, we have a, a system called Social Survey, which is a, a way of trying to identify the students that have uh, real needs and responding to those needs because we, uh, we try not to allow the financial situation they're in be a, a cause for them not to come to Bethlehem University. I'm just wondering about this fact that you're co-educational. Is that normal in Palestine? Oh, in universities it is, yes. yes. We have 78% of our students are women, uh, which is the highest of any university. But I think in all, I think there are 17 universities in Palestine. I think in all of the universities there are more women than men. And who are your students? What are they studying? Oh, we have five faculties, business, education, nursing, science and arts and then we have an institute of hotel management and tourism because what we're doing is developing the institute and we purchased an abandoned hospital back in 2012 and we're converting that into a teaching hotel and a teaching restaurant and moving our institute of hotel management down to this site which is about a six or seven minute walk from our present campus. Because we uh, see the uh, hospitality and the tourism pilgrimage uh, industry uh, as being a, a crucial part of the uh, economy in, in Bethlehem and that many Christians are involved in that. And one of the reasons for Bethlehem University being started in 1973 was to provide an opportunity for Christians to get a, a quality higher education and then stay in Palestine. You know, there's a, a danger uh, of, you know, the holy site becoming museums rather than worshipping sites if, if the Christians disappear. So we're trying to, uh, to provide opportunities for them to get an education that it will enable them to stay there. And we see the hospitality industry and the tourism and pilgrimage as an area where Christians are, are very prominent. 
and uh, we believe that we have the capacity to raise the level of service available in uh, in Palestine and if people come and have a good experience then they'll tell others they'll come back again and so it's it's a way of uh, trying to keep that industry alive and is there also the opportunity for students to go overseas for further studies after they finish yes, yes. Uh, and well for some of them yes but there are restrictions on them getting out of the country uh, but uh, we have quite a number of our students leave to get a master's in uh, in either the United States or in uh, UAE or down in the Gulf uh, or in Europe and, and Britain and then many of them come back and we we have a university in the States in outside of Chicago, Lewis University, which is another brother's university, which has been by far the most supportive of any university in the world. For almost 30 years now, they've taken one of our graduates, put them through a master's program at their expense on the condition that they come back and teach with us. And that's been a great benefit to us because one of our real challenges is to get qualified faculty because we really have to have Palestinians because the Israelis will not uh, give um, work permits to uh, international people to come and work for us. So they can only get a three-month visiting visa. We're reliant on Palestinians as faculty members and to get qualified people like that coming back to us is is a great help. In this final part of Tuesday Home Time, I'm speaking with Brother Peter Bray, who's the Vice-Chancellor of Bethlehem University in Palestine. I'm just wondering, Peter, with being outspoken like you are about the situation of the Palestinians in the occupied territories, how that impacts on the university, or doesn't it impact on the university? Well, as far as I can see, it doesn't. I'm a small fry in the big pond there. But still, they don't like criticism. No, they don't. But there are many, many people, including many Israelis, who are much more dried in their criticism of Israel than I am. I'm careful about what I say. I'm very aware of the the rules that um, uh, Israel has put in place as far as uh, foreigners promoting various ways of resisting uh, the occupation. And I'm not prepared to... Um, to move in that direction and uh, so I, uh, I, I don't talk about that sort of thing. Do you talk at all about the policies of Trump, how that's impacted on the, the people? Well, of... yes, oh, it has very real impacts on us and that, that is just talking about our students, like uh, one of the real impacts it has. When he decided to withdraw all support for Palestine, it meant that the Palestinian Authority didn't have money to do what they had committed themselves to do. And under an arrangement that was set uh, many years ago, we were supposed to get $1.3 million a year from the Palestinian Authority. Well, the last two years, we've got absolutely nothing. And then in addition, because the Palestinian Authority don't have enough money to pay full salaries to their employees, I think they're paying 60% of their salaries. The Palestinian Authority has been putting pressure on us to reduce the tuition of the children of their employees. So, you know, that's a double wangy for us. So that, that's impacted on us to the extent that we have had to uh, look very carefully at our budget. And uh, unfortunately, we've got a accumulating deficit. 
So what we've done is we've adopted a policy of no new hires. We've had a, a across-the-board cut in, in budgets for each of the departments and as a way of dealing with that because and then uh, trying to increase our fundraising because there's only two ways to deal with a deficit. That is, you, you uh, reduce your spending and you increase your uh, income. We are restricted in uh, what we can really increase the tuition by because we want to stay you know, in the middle uh, around what other universities are charging because uh, it has huge impacts on us if we, you know, we skyrocketed our tuition in contrast to what other universities are charging. So the amount that we can increase the tuition is, is limited and so we have to try and increase the fundraising that we're doing. And also the fact that Trump has moved the embassy, I think it's the embassy, oh, yeah. to Jerusalem. How yeah. has that impacted my reading of the thing is that... Because Jerusalem's it, very close to Bethlehem. Oh, yeah, about seven kilometres, yeah. But in practical terms, I don't think it has had much impact. But uh, I think, you know, prior to that, the Palestinians are very aware that all the resolutions that the United Nations have passed really uh, have just been ignored by many countries around the world. But at least they had the international law they could come to because under international law Jerusalem is an international city and the, all countries in the world except Israel accepted that and so you know that was something that the Palestinians had as a, a, a fallback position I suppose now with uh, President Trump ignoring that and saying well no it, uh, we're going to put our embassy there it really left the Palestinians in a position where, well, who do they turn to now? Well, what is it that they can do if the international law isn't uh, something that they can turn to? And I think in many ways my perception is that there was a significant uh, sense of disillusionment uh, among Palestinians, sort of a sense of abandonment, I suppose, that this uh, last bastion, if you like, of uh, recourse had been taken from them. But in, in practical terms, uh, I, d I don't see any impact that it has had, but it, it certainly uh, impacted the, the way they're thinking about, you know, what the future holds for them. And, and this latest thing of this deal of the century is, is such a farce, uh, you know. So what I'm concerned about is what that's going to mean and what the uh, upcoming elections are going to mean. The, one of the things that's being talked about is all Area C because Palestine is divided into Area A, Area B and Area C. And Area C is that part of Palestine that is under uh, Israeli control. One of the proposals is that that be taken into Israel. Now, if that happens, I'm not sure what it's going to mean for our students from, uh, from Hebron because they come through Area C to get to Bethlehem University. Now, is that going to mean they're going to have to face more checkpoints? Is it going to mean it's going to be impossible, as is happening from Ramallah, for example? We used to have students coming from Ramallah on a daily basis, but to do that now since the wall has gone, and it means coming through at least, at least two checkpoints, maybe three checkpoints to get to us, you know, it's just uh, not feasible. And is the same thing going to happen for our students from uh, Hebron? So there's that sort of uncertainty and unpredictability that uh, is one of the consequences of uh, some of the things that Trump is talking about. I'm not talking about particularly about your students. But is there a feeling amongst 
people in Palestine that the younger generations are fed up and they want something done? Uh, a mix. I'd say some students very much are along those lines. I'd say a lot of them are just trying to ignore, are just trying to get by. Uh, and they have a sense that there's nothing that they can do is going to make any difference. So find the best way they can to live their life. And as one student told me, you know, she's aware of all of the restrictions under which she's uh, having to live. But she, she talked about the fact that they're not, she said to me, brother, they're not inside me. They're not gnawing away at me. They're there. I have to deal with them. But I've got a life to live, even with these restrictions. And so I think there's a lot, particularly a lot of the young women, would take that position that, you know, they're just going to get on and live life as fully as they can. These restrictions are around them, but they feel probably quite disempowered just get on and live life as, as fully as they can as the, where they are. But I'd say some of them are certainly uh, working. Uh, you know, we have a, an approach of, uh, of non-violent resistance to uh, the occupation and trying to get students to, to see that what they are doing and getting an education is a way of resisting the occupation and as some or quite a number of students have said you know the only weapon they see they have is their education you know that resistance of uh, coming each day to the university despite the uh, the wall despite the, res uh, the the experience on the bus despite the uh, the checkpoints you know I think that is a, a form of non-violent resistance which we would be encouraging and of course Netanyahu is still there he might yeah. not be there for much longer but is there any possibility or pros prospect of anyone better coming in? Well, I think the, the Palestinians have taken the attitude towards the Israeli elections that it really doesn't matter who's there. Basically, the thing is going to stay the same. That's a fairly accurate assessment of the situation there. There will be minor variations, but you know, in terms of the way in which the Palestinians are going to be treated, uh, I don't really think it matters who's, uh, who's the Prime Minister there. And you're in there for the long haul? I... I'm on a five-year contract, and oh. I'm, I'm on my third five-year contract. <laughs> I finish, I'm supposed to finish up at the end of the academic year in 2023, in June 2023. I have asked if I could go on to the next semester and finish in December 2023 because in October 2023 is our 50th Jubilee and I'd just like to be there for that. You know, I, I, it will be 15 years by that time and I think that the university needs a change. Um, I've done what I think I can contribute and I think, um, uh, you know, to j just hold on and on and on, I don't think that's very helpful for the university. I know I'm going to find it incredibly difficult to leave, but I, I think for the sake of the university, it's going to be really important that somebody else with a different vision, with a different approach, uh, come in and move the university into a, a different phase. And what was your vision when you began? I would have to admit that um, uh, looking back from this perspective, how ignorant I was, I really had no idea what I was walking into. I would say that what I've tried to do over these years is, um, you know, to respond to the question that uh, I'm often asked, you know, what is a um, unashamedly Christian university doing in a country where there's less than 2% Christian? Uh, and my response is, well, 
if you go back 2,000 years to when Jesus started walking that land, there were no Christians there at all then, so we're better off than he, he was. At least we've got 2%. But what was he trying to do? Well, and if you go to St. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I've come that they may have life, life in all its fullness. So that's what he was doing, and that's exactly what we are trying to do, you know, to, to create an atmosphere, to develop an environment, and provide opportunities for our students to gain the knowledge, to acquire the skills, and then develop the attitudes and virtues that's going to enable them to live life as fully as they can, despite the restrictions and the occupation that they have. I think what we've done over the last 12 years is become more conscious of that and to emphasize again you know the fact that we're a La Salian university and that you know what uh, Jean-Baptiste de La Salle emphasized in terms of the relationships we're trying to build I think the you know developing that oasis of peace has been something that I, I thought was really really important and I think uh, you know, with all due humility, I think we are doing a great job at that. And uh, listening to our uh, graduates, you know, they reflect back on what a peaceful time it was for them to be part of Bethlehem University. So, you know, I'm very conscious that I'm just uh, one person at Bethlehem University. There are many, many people who are working in the same line. I'm conscious that uh, what we are, you know, uh, my basic four questions are what what do we want and I keep uh, looking at you know not just in a superficial way but what do we really want at Bethlehem University and then my second question is honestly facing up to you know what are we doing and then that crucial question is what we're doing getting us what we want and if it's not what's an alternative strategy and that, that's something that I've been emphasizing in the 12 years I've been there and I think what we are moving towards is to be a, a university that provides quality higher education in a Lasallian context that enables students to live life as fully as they can and you know we have to unpack that and see what it means and and I was speaking last night about the fact that I think there are three levels there's the macro level the micro level and the personal level and a at a macro level, we're looking at how do we, as a university, work against those things that are the cause of poverty and justice, not just band-aiding them, but uh, addressing the cause. And I think that, therefore, you know, it's really important for us to work with our students to resist the occupation and the restrictions and to enable them to live life more fully. And then the second thing is to enable them or to work against are the things that are restricting them from being who they're capable of being. And we're an educational institution, so one of the key things for that is uh, working against ignorance. So in the courses that we offer, in the programs and uh, the, the academic thing, what we're doing is working against ignorance. But we're also working against fear. We're also working against prejudice. We're also working against anything that we see that is preventing our students developing themselves with dignity. And then the third thing is, uh, on a personal level, to help them overcome their selfishness and sin, to redevelop their, their connection with God and with other people. That's really something that uh, we are working on an individual level with people. And uh, one of the things I mentioned last night to the people that really touched me that two weeks before I came, I left uh, Bethlehem, 
uh, I'd been speaking to a, pil- a group of pilgrims and there were four, I think, of our uh, ambassadors there. And one of the girls came up to me and said, you know, who knew I was coming to Australia and said, well, how do I work with our students here to raise money for the people who have been hurt by the fires in Australia? I was really touched by that because here, given what they are going through, she was able to think of people who uh, were suffering in another part of the world. And I think, you know, developing that sense of of being selfless, of thinking of other people. And another young woman, uh, a little clip I showed last night, was talking about at Bethlehem University she had been turned into a living conscience and now feels so responsible to find out about and improve this world. And it's that sort of thing that, uh, you know, I'd be really trying to develop as much as we possibly can. But, you know, I get a little passionate about that. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. And that was Brother Peter Bray, who's the Vice-Chancellor of the Bethlehem University in Palestine. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The federal government has just announced plans for a radioactive waste dump in Kimba on Bangala country. BHP is expanding the Olympic Dam uranium mine. Now is the time to join the radioactive resistance. Hit the road with Friends of the Earth Melbourne's Nuclear Free Collective as we travel to frontline communities and see how the nuclear industry impacts people. The radioactive exposure tour will run from April 10 to 19 this year. More details on melbournefoe.org.au slash radtour2020 or contact us on radexposuretour at gmail.com. Bose Nuclear Free Campaign is a 3CR supporter. Okay, well that's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4, but do stay tuned for Dumb by Law. <laughs>